Welcome to Applied Geopolitics, the podcast from the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN. I'm your host, Roger Baker. From grain flows through the Black Sea to strategic minerals bottlenecks to competition over advanced semiconductors, supply chain disruptions are often some of the most prominent and attention-grabbing examples of geopolitical risk on business operations. But the impacts are often not quite as attention-grabbing, simply adding more friction to the complexities of global trade. And at the center of it all sits the global shipping industry, the connective tissue of global trade and commerce. It is there that one set of risks can reverberate and compound impacts across seemingly unconnected sectors or even geographies. To discuss some of the ways geopolitical risks impact the global shipping industry and business in general, I'm happy to be joined today by Mr. Punit Oza, Senior Adjunct Fellow at the Maritime and Port Authority of Singapore Academy, an Affiliate Research Fellow and Guest Lecturer at the Singapore Management University, where he lectures on geopolitical risks and their impact on shipping and trade flows. Mr. Oza has more than 30 years of experience in the dry bulk shipping, and now heads his own company, Maritime NXT Singapore, focused on the next in the maritime space. He is a fellow of the Institute of Chartered Shipbrokers and currently the vice chairman of the Singapore branch of the Institute. Mr. Rosa, thanks for joining me here today. Thank you so much, Roger, for having me here. It's a real pleasure to be on the podcast. Uh, thank you so much. It's great to have you. So let, be, before we jump into to talking about, um, you know, types of risk and how we think about it, how do you define geopolitical risk? What are the ways in which you look at this this field or this this way of perceiving risks or opportunities? Thank you so much, Roger. Um, I think that's a very important question. Um, before I get into that, I would just like to say that the introduction was very kind. Thank you so much. Uh, my interest in geopolitics has uh, been on for the last four or five years, where I've been teaching, as you mentioned, at the SMU. Um, but interestingly, um, I have been going through a lot of these aspects of geopolitics in my work without realizing that it's actually geopolitical nature. So defining geopolitical risk is probably a good starting point. Uh, and I would define geopolitical risk as risk associated with war or, or various other tensions which are between states that affect the normal and, and peaceful course of international relations, but they have to be geopolitical in nature. They have to be restricted or in some ways connected to the place, the geography, the political aspects, as well as the economic aspects, which are basically unique to the country in question. And that really makes trade a very important part of that equation as we go along. Yep. Yeah, and I, I like that you, you know, you emphasize, of course, the geography part. It's something that we we try to emphasize a lot here. I think sometimes people consider geopolitical risk simply war, conflict, and competition, and they forget that it has um, very clear geographic components to it. You know, and if, if we're talking trade, um, you know, there there are those real components of location, of resources being in different places across the globe, of uh, consumer markets and productive markets, and about the likely paths or the most effective paths between places. So geography really does matter in understanding the impact of these risks. Absolutely. Um, when you're looking at this, what uh, ways uh, have you seen geopolitical risk express itself uh, in global trading, global shipping? And obviously things like, you know, if there is a war, it creates a big disruptive component. 
um, and, and we can talk about that a little bit, but are there things outside of the the biggest uh, attention grabbers, the, the, the wars and, and the coups that you see that have these types of impacts and implications? Yep, I think there are a lot of interesting areas which do not get highlighted. One of the reasons why I teach this to the students is because I really want the students to appreciate the nuances of the trade aspects of geopolitical risks. Um, so one of, the, one of the easiest ones is, of course, the barriers to trade and free trade agreements. While barriers to trade usually get a lot of publicity, um, like, for example, the U.S.-China trade war, uh, did result in a um, lot of grain trades which were uh, bound for China originate from Brazil and Argentina as against America because of the tariffs. So that was a redirection of trade flows effectively away from the United States and uh, towards East Coast South America. That obviously has an impact on shipping because a ship that needs to be employed for a U.S. Gulf loading uh, usually is um, basically coming in from the European side while if a ship is loading out of East Coast South America, most likely it's going to ballast or come in from Africa side. So the location of where these ships can be sourced from changes the trade flows quite significantly, um, while the destination is still China. So that's something which was one of the impacts. But interestingly, the free trade agreements actually do create new trade flows. There can be an instance where a country has a free trade agreement with another country, but eventually it finds that a third country is demanding its goods and it wants to export to the third country but it doesn't have any free trade agreements with the third country so what it does it reroutes the goods via this other country the first country with which it has a free trade agreement and maybe it has uh, the second the first country has another free trade agreement with the third country that can be a huge difference so one of the examples is singapore singapore sits with a tremendous amount of free trade agreements across the globe and some of the countries want to export to ASEAN countries, do not have the ability to do so directly because they don't have an FTA with that ASEAN country, but they can reroute their cargo via Singapore, creating a new trade flow. This has happened in the past with India in past, where it didn't have a, a trade agreement with, say, Vietnam, for example. It did reroute some of the steel passes that I've seen in my career through Singapore and did a bit of uh, additional work on, Singapore, on the steel parcels reformatted or remanufactured or added some value to them and then re-exported them as a Singaporean cargo into Vietnam because of the ASEAN free trade zone. It basically did not pay any tariffs. So these are some of these unique trade flow aspects which come in because of barriers to trade as well as uh, free trade agreements. And now with new free trade agreements coming across the globe, uh, whether it's RCEP or whether it's any of the other ones, Quad or other things, I believe the trade flows will significantly change going forward. I would think so. Yeah, that, that that's really interesting. You know, for the, for those who are dependent upon trade, but not directly in um, the, the the trade sector, as it were, in the shipping sector, um, sometimes it's not easy to see the way. For example, a shift in where somebody is sourcing something will impact the entire uh, set of ships available for other geographies or for other uses, right? In, in war and in conflict, we're constantly used to the concepts of logistics and friction, um, but that seems to be a, a, a really important component of understanding not only the first order, but the second or third order impacts of, of geopolitical tensions uh, on the global, global trade and on the flows of goods. 
Yep, absolutely. Uh, but there is another interesting example recently where the Australians and the Chinese have not been um, very cozy with each other on some of the commodities. Um, and then you actually had a situation where the Chinese did not want that much of coal. Obviously, they've seen a bit of slowdown themselves in their economy. They didn't want to buy the Australian coal in the same volume. And in fact, they didn't want to buy any Australian coal for a while. What actually that happened was because of the Ukrainian war, the European countries started importing because they didn't get the gas from Ukraine and Russia, sorry. They actually got a lot of um, coal imported from Asia. And suddenly this Australian coal found a home in Europe. Um, and that was a very different trade flow than what Australians would have expected or even the world would have expected um, in terms of the, the movement of the coal cargo. So war can create a very uh, challenging understanding because I can tell you that none of the analysts would have assumed or researched or forecasted that Australian coal will move all the way to Europe because numbers would never have made sense was it not for the Russian gas cutting the pipeline off. So this is really about you know these challenges and continuous developments that are happening in the geopolitical space. And because of that, you're right. Nobody knows where the sourcing can come from because sometimes you really want to make sure that you just secure the cargo for energy security. And therefore, the price may not be the only governing factor. There can be a multiple aspects that need to be taken into consideration. So coal out of Australia to Europe is a prime example of the, of the unintended effect of the Russia-Ukraine war, basically. And it's really interesting because as we talk about this, risk also clearly has opportunity components in it that open up. So there's both sides of the coin that we're looking at. There was a risk driven by the the China-Australia tensions and then a, a risk in European energy supplies driven by the war in Ukraine, which ended up creating unexpectedly an opportunity in the Australian euro trade. And and it requires a lot to monitor that. How, how do... How do companies or, or organizations that are not directly in that shipping industry start to see or better understand some of these dynamics and the ways that it may impact them or create new pathways for them? I think the, the main thing, Roger, is that they need, to, uh, they need to be able to access and analyze data. Uh, a lot of times past patterns uh, are available um, if you go back in time and check, um, most of the ship, shipping research companies have the information. Sometimes even other um, uh, independent research bodies have data on trade, like Reuters trade flows is also there. So what we really need to do is to find out what could be the potential sources that, like Europe in that case, would source its coal from. Um, and where would the, where would the current um, source already be committed to? Um, these kind of information flows can be then mixed up. Like in a shipping company space, you actually are looking at a, at a very unique perspective which comes from research departments which mostly work in-house in big companies or in ship broking companies outside. They are actually being asked the right questions by most of the um, internal analysts in the companies basically saying, these are the permutation combinations and how do we actually manage these permutation combinations? What is the most likelihood that this will occur? And then they corroborate that with market data. 
they actually go and find out that is a trading company actually looking to buy this or sell this they have a way of kind of uh, validating some of the theories by going into the market and testing them out so that's where the shipping companies have the advantage because they usually sit on both sides of the fence they also have the access to the positions of the ships which they know through the satellite data but they also know through the trading companies and the customers what is the mood in the market where is the where is the kind of current trend looking like so they need to add those and connect those dots and then obviously manage these geopolitical risks and probably even as you say capitalize from some of these because these are opportunities in disguise literally <laughs> when we talk with a lot of um uh, individuals involved in supply chain with companies. And of course, supply chain obviously is that that intersection between the the static and the mobile um, in in trade. Uh, there, there's been a real shift in the last, you know, 10 years, and especially the last five years, um, that has clearly moved away from uh, what at, I guess the peak of extreme globalization was the idea that supply chain should be extremely lean, extremely thin. They can be very long, web-like. And, and the idea was don't store things, don't, don't hold them for any length of time. And now that seems to be moving because of the recognition of geopolitical disruptions uh, and, and challenges to um, more resilience, to more redundancy. And that, of course, increases cost. Um, uh, but as you talk about, too, there, the, that's one of the things that is potentially going to be changing trade flows. And then the other is, of course, the, 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 the treaties or um, the competition and the new, new tariffs and things like that put on. How, how do you see some of these patterns evolving and changing the way in which uh, goods move or in which companies can remain resilient to uh, geopolitical disruptions? I think this is a very valid point that, uh, that there is a lot of talk about nearshoring and, and onshoring uh, of operations. One of the reasons for that is, is, uh, is not just geopolitics, it's also the cost structure. When the uh, factories were um, set up in China, the kind of labor costs that were available or were evident in China were extremely low. And I think the cost competitiveness of China has eroded itself um, over the years quite considerably. So now uh, opening up a Mexico operation and then setting it up for a US market is not as expensive compared to the earlier cost comparison that was there with China. So costs definitely have a part of this, but you're right. A lot of it is about security of supply. Um, I recently read a, a, a report where the American customers actually told one of the Chinese water heater maker, Vanward, that they need to relocate some of their uh, manufacturing bases closer to their markets of America um, because of geopolitical reasons. The word was quoted, because of geopolitics, we want you to change your uh, part of your uh, sourcing or, or uh, manufacturing facilities. Now, that's an unheard of situation where people are officially going and saying that we want to actually spread ourselves in, in, in this way and because of geopolitical reasons. So I think you will see more of this happening, but this is again a, a dual space, right? Um, China has seen a double digit drop in nearly four or five FMCG sectors, which is the fast moving consumer goods sectors across the board. Um, but a lot of that relocation of the manufacturing facilities have not gone too far from China. They've probably gone in the rest of Asian countries, uh, be it Indonesia, be it Vietnam, be it Philippines, 
Um, so a lot of it has actually gone close by. So trade flows are not that dramatically affected. But if they go onshoring and, and nearshoring to Europe and US, obviously the trade um, will get affected and the flows will change. But what is interesting to see is that I believe when it comes to supply chain, you have to look at the entire supply chain. You have to look at all the infrastructure, all the ancillary industries that go with it. So if you're still basically manufacturing two thirds of your commodities or products in one particular area close to your uh, market, but one third is still coming from Asia, then you're still stuck with that one third and your product is never complete without that one third being in place. So in some ways I feel that um, the trade flows will continue to um, shift but to see a complete change and dilution of ship uh, or trade flows, you need some dramatic change to happen. And the only thing, Roger, that can bring some kind of a change like that is technology. I give you a very interesting example that um, plant-based meat is one of the biggest, um, you know, technologically uh, advanced space that is coming up. There's a lot of money being invested in trying to replicate the, the, the texture and taste of the meat. Um, and obviously, food security is one of the biggest geopolitical aspect that is out there, you know, and, and, uh, and people are talking about meat substitutes or looking to try and replace some of the meat, especially in the younger population with sustainability on the agenda, health conscious behavior on the agenda, price parity coming in. But what it really does interestingly is that if that kind of technology comes in, that means that there is a complete stop to a certain amount of animal feed that is moving from uh, Brazil, Argentina and America into China to feed the animals because if the meat demand goes down you don't need to feed that many animals and automatically that trade flow will reduce and might shrink to a lower level has to be re-diverted to other areas maybe biofuels or whatever so those kind of aspects are what I call shock aspects that really ch the technology is bringing a complete change in the way the consumption patterns are happening or consumption patterns are changing that will change trade flows for sure. But nearshoring, onshoring is again a process which can be fluid and has a longer um, uh, gestation period in my mind. But technology is one thing that is moving at such a rapid pace that I think things can move very quickly. And people don't mix trade and technology that quickly, but I believe both of them are extremely closely connected, mostly due to geopolitical aspects, um, which is fascinating, fascinating. Well, certainly, and, and I'll, I'll come back to that technology here in a minute. But one of the things as you as you raise this is it it seems to um, suggest that as we're thinking about the shifting geopolitical landscape of the world, that the the assertions that the world is moving to a traditional Cold War bipolar structure um, there's a whole lot of constraint to that or, or friction to that, because as you note, even with moving industry manufacturing out of China, it's not coming back. It's not being separated. So so we're not seeing this, this decoupling move. The connectivity is still there, particularly strong. But the likelihood of uh, disruptions to it remains very high. Yes, you're right about that. And, and I think the... Uh... The classic example is the economic investments that countries have made. You know, we always talk about political investments that countries have made, um, be it uh, having, you know, political ties with countries or even set up military bases in countries. That has obviously been a, a, a different pattern altogether. 
But what China has actually defined in the last 15 years is that they have not really gone and uh, and in, you know gone into a political space alone. They have actually amalgamated a lot of economic policies when they've gone and invested in a country, whether it is uh, through the BRI, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, or through other instruments of financing projects. Um, and some of these countries in Africa, Southeast Asia, uh, South Asia, uh, are basically having more than 25% of their GDP as debt to China. And, and today, as economy has taken a little bit of a turn for the worse, um, a lot of the trade is actually now basically essentially being controlled or becoming more China-centric. So I have a feeling that when it comes to these nearshoring and onshoring opportunities, some of the countries will actually struggle to do that and decouple themselves completely with China solely because of the fact that there are so many other linkages out there. Um, I would say majority of the world, except North America and a few European countries, majority of the world rely on China as its largest supplier today. And that is not changing um, very quickly um, in, in near future. However, the complexity of that, um, of that reliance on China is changing. The texture of reliance on China is changing, except for those countries which are heavily indebted to China. So I think there's going to be a, there's going to be a space where um, there, will be, you know, there, there will be an impact uh, because of China's heavy economic uh, influence on these countries. I also see uh, a huge push towards um, using non-US dollar currencies for trade or barter trades. Uh, and these trade flows are something which are directly resulting because of geopolitical aspects as well. So we have to keep an eye on these aspects going forward. Um, bipolar world, I'm not sure how that would pan out, but I can tell you that there are other contenders out there. India is strongly trying to come up. As, a, as an alternative with some areas where they are strong, some areas where they are not competing with China. But in general, I find that Asia's rise is, uh, is on uh, the anvil going forward. In the next 25 to 30 years, Asia will become even bigger, I would say, from maritime space. 75% of the world trade is Asia-centric today. Either it comes into Asia, out of Asia, or within Asia. That will increase, I would say, uh, going forward because population also is a big aspect where Asia is, is benefiting. The demand is growing here. And then 30 years down the line, I really feel Africa will start coming up because Africa has tremendous potential, which is uh, not yet fully um, uh, realized. And there China has a big role to play to start with, but eventually Africa will come on its own. That's my feeling. And we need to keep a very close eye on those trade flows developing, um, because they will be completely different from what um, the current uh, set of trade flows are. I'll just give you a very simple example, Roger, about how Africa is leapfrogging in certain areas. You know, 85%. Um, I heard, I read somewhere, 85% of the mobile users uh, in Africa are already using payment through the mobiles, which means that they've leapfrogged from having cash in their hand to basically paying through the mobiles directly bypassing credit cards, bypassing uh, banks, uh, bypassing a lot of other things. What I'm trying to say is that there's a, there's a different Africa in 30 years time, which will be looking at different trade routes and different ways to trade altogether. So we have to keep watch on this space. And again, technology comes into that space uh, very quickly, but we have to keep an eye on that 100%. Well, yeah, and definitely, I think coming back to that technology issue, right? Um, it, was, it was highly unlikely 
that there was going to be seen to be cost effectiveness by by investors to run all of the copper wires across Africa for for telephone connectivity um, at, at, a, at a certain point. And we see these these big geographies and logistical challenges for investment. And then the cell phone comes along and it it allows both that rapid expansion of communications and then the connection of traditional um, monetary flows to connect those directly into the into the cell technology, which created new business opportunities, new opportunities within communities, all sorts of things. And it really changed that technology seems to have had a, a very big impact. And I think if we go back to looking at global trade, even, you know, it was the the standardization of containerized shipping at a particular moment in time that really facilitated in part this rapid expansion of global supply chains rather than local supply chains. Then it also took into consideration the 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 wage disparities in different parts of the world and things of that sort. Those types of technologies there, as we're looking forward, obviously, you know, environmental issues, things of that sort are 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 very um, uh, have a strong impact these days. How are you seeing potentially technology changing in the shipping industry that will better facilitate um, flows and be uh, recognized as relevant as as uh, nations? start to prioritize things like um, uh, environmental issues, uh, changes in fuel, um, and and other sorts of of protections. Absolutely. I mean, uh, this, Roger, is right on the top of the maritime industry's agenda right now. Um, They are looking at decarbonization as the most urgent need. The IMO has just come out with uh, about 2050 uh, as a deadline uh, to really go net zero. Um, but the main thing for, for from my perspective is that they are trying new fuels. But what is most interesting is that countries like Norway, countries like um, even China, I was reading this morning that the 700 uh, container capacity, 20 foot container capacity uh, container ship is now fully battery uh, operated electric uh, container ship in China going up and down the Yangtze River. Um, and out of the 700 containers, 36 containers are actually the battery containers, which means that they are swapping the batteries as they go along. Um, and they have the ability to basically unload these used batteries and put new batteries into that slot and then basically take it up and down, which means that it takes away this whole idea of... of um, of requirement of of having a longevity of the battery and and uh, you know uh, uh, how long can you actually travel if you can continue to swap batteries all the way down you can take that ship wherever you want um, the same applies to electric vehicles uh, concept right you can actually have a charger or a cord or electric charger uh, cord in your in your car you can just plug it in wherever you are and you obviously uh, can can charge your car for as long as you want now these are the things which obviously are going to drive short sea trades to start with because short sea trades are easy to manage because they're localized in some ways whether an international uh, deep sea trade will actually uh, come into this space um, i would actually say they would come in because it's a bit like this whenever there is demand obviously there will be solutions being developed and in shipping industry the demand or the push 
for these technology uh, changes as well as environmental uh, aspects is coming from two areas. One, it's coming from within the industry, which is self-regulating through the International Mar Maritime Organization, the IMO and other bodies and individual uh, ideas coming from shipping companies. But more importantly, it's coming from the customers. It's from the IKEAs, the Walmarts and the others who are basically saying, we want basically to achieve net zero for our customers and we want to you know, guarantee a sustainable way of doing things. You as my shipping partner, needs to do your bit and make sure that we don't falter or fail because of your inability to get to net zero. So this is actually driving this process across um, and that's really impressive in terms of the fact that the customers are coming in. Now the question is, will they pay a little bit more for this? Some of them will, some of them will not, but eventually there's been a discussion about a carbon tax which might be coming in and which might actually have the ability to head up, you know, get more research and development going that can really change the way I think, um, in my mind, the shipping industry can uh, can move towards the, the net zero space, which is so important. Mind you, shipping is still the most sustainable way and the environmentally efficient way to ship goods from point A to point B. Economies of scale, average emissions per ton of cargo carried are the lowest among all the ways to transport the commodity. So please don't get me wrong, shipping has always been efficient, but it needs to become even more efficient when it comes to carbon emissions. And that's what shipping is trying to do, yeah. Well, I think you, know, you raise an interesting point here too, is that as we think about these, these geopolitical patterns that are shaping or impacting trade or shaping or impacting the technologies used, there are also bottom-up elements, right? There's the there's the consumers themselves who are changing certain demands. There's the companies that sit in the middle that are that are asking or anticipating or trying to create requirements. And then there's the top-down components of carbon taxes, of regulatory dynamics, of of uh, risk dynamics and geographies. So we have to be able to look at all of these. If you were to, you know, in in you know, we've got a couple minutes left. If you were to summarize. What are the three or four things that 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 people can be looking for to be aware of of how to how to assess and manage these evolving multidisciplinary, multi-sectoral <laughs> geopolitical risks that are coming at them? Because it can seem overwhelming to the point of saying, well, it's too big and I don't have an impact, so why should I even care? Absolutely. I mean I, I think it's it's a very complex topic, but uh, but I have I have got like a like a five uh, step process which I usually um, put out there. The first step is knowledge. You really need to understand your customers, their products, and their customers' customers and what they need. Because eventually, what is going to affect somebody's customer is going to affect him, and therefore it will affect you because he's your customer. So, obviously, the knowledge is very important to understand where these geopolitical challenges could arise and the current geopolitical challenges. So knowledge is one. The second aspect is data and analytics. So look at past patterns to try and at least figure out what could be the potential scenario buildings that you can try and look at. The third aspect, which is most interesting, is technology. You can actually have access to a lot of information, a lot of data about where the ships are, what's happening in that particular place, what kind of piracy issues can be happening, what kind of other issues can actually crop up. Technology is available now which can give you the access to those analytics and people are able to give much more up-to-date real-time information. That's the third part. 
And the fourth part is contractual clarity. This is very important to realize that there are bodies and organizations in all industries, including shipping industries, which have standardized contracts with updated clauses. So for example, the oil price cap clause of Russia, BIMCO has come up with a standard clause, which actually does need to be incorporated in contracts. So please use the latest clauses to make sure that you don't have any loopholes or ambiguity in your contracts with developing geopolitical issues. And finally, the fifth step is, Look at all the four things and then eventually take a risk. Take a calculated risk. <laughs> That's the only way to do things. You have to take a risk to eventually get a return. So Roger, this is the five-step process which I think are very important for shipping companies to delve into and of course customize and weight it according to their own needs. But please remember, this is a dynamic developing space. I don't need to tell you, you know exactly more about it. It's fascinating, but it's very complicated. Well, that, that, that I think is a great way to wrap up our discussion today, but I do want to follow up in the future, and I think it would be great to, to, to keep picking apart some of these issues and maybe looking at some particular geographies and really understanding how these trends are evolving. So I really want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. I look forward to future collaborations and wish you all the best, and I'll continue to follow you and your work as well. Well done. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for listening. We've been talking with Mr. Punit Oza, head of the Maritime NXT Singapore, senior adjunct fellow at the Maritime and Port Authority of Singapore Academy, and an affiliated research fellow and guest lecturer at Singapore Management University. To keep up with the latest trends and changes in the global geopolitical landscape and explore the implications for internationally engaged businesses and organizations, visit RAINnetwork.com and sign up for alerts and information from the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN. That's R-A-N-E-Network.com. I'm Roger Baker. Thanks for listening. <laughs>